Hello, Unnecessary Detail listeners, it's me, Matt Parker. Before the episode starts, I want to let you know that our next big, spectacular live show, that's where we're actual humans on a stage, will be in London's glamorous West End on Monday the 2nd of December. Tickets are already on sale, and they're selling fast, so get over to festivalofthespokenerd.com slash tickets, and you can join up to 1,199 other detail fans in this fantastic theater. I hope to see you there. And now, on with the episode. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to a podcast of unnecessary detail. I'm Matt Parker. I'm Helen Arnie. I'm Steve Mould, and together we make comedy shows about science. Yeah, and when we're researching stuff for new shows, we often find that the delight is in the detail. And yes, the journey down the path of extra detail is often a little bit longer, but the reward is always greater. And that's what this podcast is all about. We're solitary creatures at heart, but sometimes we like to come together and share our findings. This time, we've all been digging up detail about fuel. Yeah, I'm talking about fuel for your body. I'm talking about plain fuel, or a lack thereof. I'm talking about coal. Oh, wow. Sounds like you're taking a uh, surprisingly pro-fossil fuel stance there, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Nothing wrong with burning coal. That's what I've discovered in my research. There's no side effects at all. Yeah. Let's find some detail on that. Matt, what have you got to talk about? So, one of my favourite stories involving fuel, or rather a lack of fuel, was a flight in the 1980s where a Air Canada flight was flying across Canada from Edmonton to Montreal, and they put an insufficient amount of fuel in the aircraft. Which you think, how on earth could a plane take off with not enough fuel? Surely in a plane there are so many checks. And the reason it was a problem in the first place was it was a unit conversion error. So this was right when Canada was switching from imperial to metric units. And they'd switched over the way they were fueling aircraft. Blame colonialism for all of this. Exactly. (laughs) Well, hey, a small price to pay to get onto real units. And so in a car, you'll use litres or gallons for fuel because volume is so much easier to measure. Whereas for a plane, because volume changes with temperature, that's not quite accurate enough. So you do it in mass. How much does it change? Actually, I'm not sure what how much it varies. Yeah. Enough that for a Boeing 767, when you're putting in 22,600 kilograms of fuel, it must make a bit of a difference. 
And so that makes the calculation slightly more complicated because if you're measuring the amount of fuel in an aircraft, you actually measure the volume first, then you convert it to mass to work out how much fuel that would be. And so what they did was they initially calculated exactly how much fuel they'd need for this flight in kilograms, and then they accidentally put in that many pounds. Matt, is this one of these funny stories where at the end you're like, and everyone died? No, it's okay. So in this story, everybody lives. And they get so Good. close, so close to disaster. So the plane actually runs out of fuel midair. But the pilot, before they became a commercial airline pilot, they used to be a glider pilot. And so they were able to glide this Boeing 787. I mean, that is amazing because a bunch of things must have gone wrong in order for this to have happened, to get half as much fuel. Because what is a pound is like half a kilogram, Yeah, it's right? about, about 45% of a kilogram, so it's just mm. under half. So what happened was... First of all, they had an issue with the sensors. So they've got the sensors that are in the tanks and they measure how much fuel is in there. They send that into a processing unit that then sends it to the gauge on the dashboard so they can see whatever the dashboard equivalent is in an airplane. Not an aviation expert, <laughs> but I am a calculation expert. So initially they had an issue with this uh, thing that took the reading from the sensors in and they realized one flight prior, if you unplug one of them, it starts working again. Like, what? Uh -huh. And then plug it in, stops working. Unplug it, working. So the technician who was working on the aircraft is like, that's odd. Well, while I'm ordering a replacement unit, I could just leave one unplugged and it will work. But now there's no longer any redundancy. And redundancy is the name of the game yeah, in yeah, aviation. Yeah. Mm. So they were like, oh, okay. We can still be safe to fly if, as well as having one sensor working, we also do a manual check. And they double-checked, and that was all fine. So one sensor works, and someone physically goes out with a stick and puts it in the tank <laughs> and checks there's enough fuel. Nice. And that worked is, fine is that, for that Does flight. that work like a dipstick? You put a long... Exactly like a dipstick. Stick. You put a stick in there, see how much fuel you got. No worries. But then when it landed at the end of that flight and was about to do the return journey, they were changing pilots. And the pilot who was flying over is like, oh, hey, we got this issue with the fuel gauges, but don't worry, as long as we do a manual check, it's still fine. And the next pilot's like, oh, brilliant, thanks for letting me know. And the technicians don't really hand over properly. And so the new technician comes in and goes, hey, why is this unplugged, right? Uh... Plugs it in, and then it stops working. And they're like, oh, that's not good. I better go report that. They go off to report that, never come back to unplug it. Meanwhile, <laughs> they do the manual check, and when they do the manual check, they do pounds instead of kilograms. Oh. And the reason why this was kind of easy to do is it wasn't like they were entering the number of pounds. They would measure the volume. They then used the specific gravity conversion from the current temperature for how dense the fuel would be. What? And because specific gravity kind of hides what units you're using, they looked up the wrong specific gravity. They did the specific <gasps> gravity for that kind of fuel at that temperature for pounds, not for kilograms. And so it's just slightly different numbers. So it's easy mistake to make. It's not quite as bad as if they were literally just entering the wrong units. Yeah. But when the pilot got on, they saw the gauges weren't working and they remembered the conversation and they misunderstood. They're like, oh, they, they said the there's a problem with the gauges. They didn't realize the problem is they're working, but without the redundancy. They just thought, oh, they're not working. That's the problem. As long as we do the manual check, we're fine. <gasps> The no, so then, check. The, then the pilot took it down to one check yeah. by by misunderstanding. So the pilot was like, oh, just one check is fine. That's normal for flying an aircraft the whole time that I always do. Yes. And I have to admit, afterwards, everyone survives. And the pilot was like, everyone was amazed that no one died because they were able to fly this aircraft. However, they were... I think they were suspended for six months. Like, there were some repercussions afterwards that this even happened. 
And it's this weird balance of the flight crew were incredibly heroic. Nobody died. Yeah. But also, how'd this happen in the first place? Yeah. And yeah, my jury's out because there were so many mistakes. I think it's not fair to pin it on any one person in the chain. Yeah, it's a yeah. sort of it's a perfect storm. Exactly. I wonder maybe the rule should be you know, if you've built this system with redundant checks and things like that, when something goes wrong, you shouldn't just say, "Well, we'll sort of add some redundancy on the fly," because that's when human error can creep in. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. But the thing is, you need to have a way that if you lose one redundancy, there was a, a system to get another one put in and make sure it's okay, which they did. But then... They and, failed the failsafe. Yeah. And there's a great thing in accident prevention called the Swiss cheese model, which I love, which is that you'll have these redundancies and double checks and safety checks and you imagine them as like barriers to stop mistakes getting into your system. But no one check is perfect. Because it's humans, right? Humans are very mm. creative at mistakes. So they're all going to have some holes in them. And so you just hope if a mistake makes it through a few checks, because it happens to get through a hole, it's going to hit a slice eventually and stop. But, you know, no matter how many slices of cheese you have, there's a chance the holes will line up and a mistake will get all the way through and disaster. Although there's other models called the hot cheese model, where you imagine the cheese slices horizontally, but they're hot and they might drip because the checks you put into your system can themselves cause mistakes. Mm. So it's, it's not just a case of shoving more and more and more checks. Too many checks or anything like that are going to cause errors. It's amazing. The every, every time you add a new moving part, it might fail. Exactly. And it might cause other parts to fail as well. Yeah, so adding new slices of cheese to your system doesn't always help. I always wonder when I'm putting fuel in the car... Is there an optimum? Because when I'm adding fuel, I'm adding weight to the vehicle. So if I fill the tank up completely, then it's really heavy. To begin with, I'm less efficient. But obviously, the process of going to a petrol station to fill up is inefficient as well. It's certainly time inefficient well, for Well, this me. is the Formula One problem. Yeah. Where if you're in a Formula One race, do you start with loads of fuel in your car so you won't have to take a pit stop for ages? Or do you start with not much fuel, you'll be lighter, you'll get out the front of the pack, mm. but then you have to have your pit stop. And then if you do that technique, you might have to have one more pit stop over the course. And that's obviously very inefficient. Yeah. So yeah, it's... um. But if you've gained your advantage, yeah. you can afford another pit stop. But the fact that it's a strategy that varies and a lot of money is thrown at F1, mm -hmm. I suspect no one's cracked that. There was an issue in the news of airlines fueling up in slightly cheaper regions where the fuel was ever so slightly cheaper. They would put more fuel into the airplane which would be much less fuel efficient, like your problem, Steve, mm. just to save like $30 or something. But because it was burning so much more fuel, the climate impact was huge compared mm. to this tiny cost saving. And airlines are getting some flack, and rightly so, about it, because they're looking at refueling as a purely economic thing rather than an environmental thing. Which they will. Thing because it's almost that's... like there should be a cost to yeah. the air. Carbon emissions. Yeah, yeah. So how do you solve that problem? Because they're having yeah. the same problem as you, Steve, but they're just going for the cost efficiency. They're just saying, right, well, money's the most important thing. I mean, I was too, <laughs> but I just couldn't work it out. No, it's a, it's a good point though. Yeah, what is the carbon footprint equivalent? I was thinking that when, you, um, when you're using satellite navigation, it's going to tell me the quickest way to get somewhere. It'd be nice if it also told me the most fuel efficient way to get somewhere. Oh, Which you should be, be able to do. Yeah. This is also a variation on the rocket equation, where yeah. if you want to launch a rocket, 
you got to put fuel on it to launch it, but the fuel has mass. So you've got to have more fuel to the point where if you want to put another kilogram of payload on, you've got to get way more fuel because you've got to put on the extra fuel to lift the new payload and the extra fuel to lift the extra fuel and the extra fuel. And yeah, it's very inefficient. Giant slingshot. So I'd say don't take your kids to school in a rocket, Steve. No, that is, it's an, oh, I'll scrap that then. Yeah. <laughs> that was my next plan. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast of Unnecessary Detail, part of the Acast Creator Network. I am basically an awful person right now um, because I do not drink caffeine. Yay, team no caffeine. Yeah, it's me and Steve versus Matt at this point. And I consume a lot of caffeine. Yeah, coffee used to be, and I guess still is my daily fuel, but now the coffee I drink contains no caffeine for several reasons, most of which was when my daughter woke up first thing in the morning, uh, she would say, mummy, I want to cuddle. And I would, (laughs) the first thing I would think was, do I have time to make a coffee first? Wow. Uh, Yeah. Do you know why know, know why I quit? It's because my wife said to me, you know, when you have caffeine and then you don't have it the next day, you're a bit mean. Oh! She was able to pick when you had and had not had caffeine. That's right. She did not know. And she would say, did you have caffeine yesterday or something? Really? Yeah. And I'd say, yeah, I did. Sorry. She was keeping her own data on your (laughs) meanness. Yeah. She didn't set up a Google calendar for it or anything, but... Um. Well, she did. She didn't tell you. Uh, so so I'm now decaffeinated. I've been 11 months and counting. Thank you very much. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, I feel good. The smugness is almost unbearable, but I'm coping <laughs> with it. you telling us. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just say I'm vegan too? It's not a competition, Steve. <laughs> Apparently the, it is. <laughs> the reason I wanted to talk about this is because I have decaffeinated fuel now and I still drink it pretty much every day, but I have never really thought about what decaffeinates my coffee i'm I'm particularly interested about this because i went caffeine free for one month and one of i know one of the reasons i went back was i couldn't find good decaf coffee so i'm like what are they doing to this coffee to get the caffeine out well let's talk about how to defuel your fuel so why do coffee plants have caffeine in to start with firstly the falling leaves contaminate the soil around basically meaning that it kills the competition i didn't know this wow yeah they're basically creating their own weed killer for other plants. That's amazing. One you might know about is if insects attack the plant, the caffeine can be toxic to them in large doses. So insects and pests will basically avoid the coffee plant. Another one I didn't know, coffee plants lace their nectar with tiny amounts of caffeine. So pollinators that come and get the nectar basically get a buzz. It gives bees a buzz is what no I'm saying. Way. Yeah. So then they remember that plant, they go further to take the pollen elsewhere they come back to the plant more often. It basically helps the plants pollinate by being more attractive to pollinators. How cool is that? Wait, so hold on. Because when you said that, my first thought was you give them a bit of caffeine, they're going to do their job better and quicker. Yeah. Oh, it's that as well. So it's not just that they're addicted to it. It's yeah. that they, they do it quicker and better. They remember that this plant gave them a little high <sighs> and it also helps them take the pollen a bit further. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so You're uh, making some great arguments for caffeine. Yeah, <laughs> I really am. And it turns out there's been some research recently looking at the DNA of coffee plants and caffeine in coffee is the same molecule as you get in cocoa, cacao plants or tea, but it was evolved differently. It's actually got to the same point of these different plants producing caffeine via different evolutionary paths is convergent evolution which means if something's convergent evolution like 
bat wings evolved to help bats fly, but bird wings evolved in a completely different way, right? It means it's a useful thing. So more than one plant has evolved the ability to produce caffeine, which means it must be useful. It's not just a side effect of some other process. Yeah, it's yeah. not an accident. And like, because e- evolution is great like this. It's just this like toddler high on sugar, bumbling around, trying to make stuff happen. It ends up doing things that it didn't really mean to. But as long as it gets to the yeah. cake tray, it's fine. But <laughs> caffeine clearly is not an accident. It, it's something that has been an advantage to plants. And that means when we drink it, it's an advantage to us. Right? I'm, I'm starting to suspect you're not going to be so relentlessly pro-caffeine. <laughs> like up until I'm like great great bit Helen okay what's next so I'm starting to think I'm going to take all this pro-caffeine rhetoric back to my wife and yeah. maybe, uh, maybe I'll start drinking coffee again yeah you will be able to fly further and faster with more pollen yeah. in the future <laughs> um, so I uh, found out a whole bunch of stuff about decaf coffee because I just really wanted to know what was in the stuff I was drinking and it basically is decaf coffee is not completely caffeine free it's not possible to get completely caffeine free coffee because of the processes they use right there's a bunch of different processes it always happens to the green beans before they're roasted which I didn't know I thought they like roasted it you got your beans and then they did some magic wave a wand over and say something and it okay I don't know but no it happens before the roasting otherwise too much of the flavor gets destroyed so the original method was to heat up the beans or soak them in water and then add a solvent to dissolve the caffeine and take it out of the beans and the first batch sounds effective no problem yeah. <laughs> sounds, what's the solvent Great plan. Well, solvent doesn't sound good yeah. solvent sounds like I'm going to clean my paintbrush you know what I mean yeah one of the solvents they used is basically paint stripper oh yeah. that's less one of the, <laughs> one of the that's one of the ones that is still used now so you add the solvent to the coffee beans and it, it takes out loads of the flavour as well. So basically you have to throw away the first batch of coffee beans. But then you use the same solvent coffee liquid soup to soak a fresh batch of beans. Which means that this time the flavour stays in the beans because the soup that you've just put it in is pretty flavoury already. But the caffeine comes out. So every time you have decaf coffee you're often drinking coffee that has been sat in its own chemical soup bath water several times over sounds way more natural yeah <laughs> and it certainly answers your question of why it tastes so bad there you go <laughs> it does taste bad i mean and decaf tea bad. is just bad. awful actually well I, I don't know there are other methods as well right so this okay. is the original one yeah. the, the reason this was one of the first ones because a whole bunch of beans that were being transported by sea got filled with brine seawater and that decaffeinated them apparently so then someone was given the job of trying to make this a better process so they soaked them in brine and then benzene was the original solvent which is basically a petrol product it probably causes cancer so that method is not used anymore instead (laughs) yeah that's cool um so instead there's a couple of things they use you can use uh, methylene chloride that's basically paint stripper or ethyl acetate and you'll hate this ethyl acetate is called a natural solvent because it can be derived from fruit and vegetables uh, which means great. which uh, means it gets natural. called natural but actually the chameleon most, word of the health food industry most of the time it's um, made as a petroleum byproduct so that's kind of a slightly more natural one i guess it's the same thing as um in nail polish remover or vinegar right so it's an edible product it's it's the thing that smells of pears when you have nail polish remover 
I don't know. I'm looking at two guys around the table here, and yeah. you're like, oh, I don't know. One thing, I, one thing I know about vinegar is that um, so it's uh, acetic acid, right? Yeah. And yeah. Um, you can make acetic acid just with the chemical reactions, and it's much cheaper than making it the inverted commas yeah. natural way. But you're not allowed to call it vinegar. So if you go to a chip shop and you have a look at the the bottle <gasps> on the counter, it won't say vinegar on it. Because it's just acetic acid. Whoa. Even though it's It's molecularly identical. Yeah. So I went off caffeine to do one of these experiments where they check your reaction times with and without caffeine. Mm -hmm. You have to lower your base level to start with. So I was like, okay, it'll be fun. And also, I'm kind of curious, am I addicted to caffeine? Could I go without it? Would I stay? But because I'm a bit of a coffee nerd, I like good coffee. I walked into all my normal coffee shops in London and they're like, Mm. oh, we don't do decaf. Yeah. We can do you a chai something. I would have thought there'd be this big demand for decaf coffee. But they said the problem is there's not enough demand. And as well as obviously you've got to have whatever process to get the caffeine out, not enough people would come in and order a decaf. And so the stock would sit there and go stale and it's too expensive and they couldn't get it from their normal suppliers. So for them, it was a major faff to get it in. And then it would go stale because no one's ordering it. Yeah. And so they, they just wouldn't ba- bother. Ba- based on three data points here us around the table, I feel like demand is going up for decaf. Well, no, it's actually gone down. I've got some stats on this. Uh, genuinely, in the 80s, um, when coffee was absolutely disgusting, uh, 15% of coffee drinkers choose decaffeinated, right? And that was back oh. in the 80s. And now it's only about 8%. We've become, as a community, more addicted to coffee and less likely to choose decaf. Isn't that because when coffee used to be gross, it didn't matter that decaf was Different also type of gross? gross. But then, yeah, you'd, exactly. then you'd think that would be the only reason to drink it, would be to get the caffeine. Oh, that's then a good what, point. Otherwise, it would be a complete waste of time. There's actually two more ways of decaffeinating coffee that don't use nail polish remover or paint stripper. Uh, <laughs> um, there's the Swiss Water Registered Trademark process, which is the one that claims to get 99.9% of And that's the one that out. most cafes I spoke yeah. to, they would get Swiss. They said, oh yeah, we um, can get hold of some Swiss water. Yeah. The Swiss water process is the favoured hipster coffee shop technique. And again, they basically soak the beans in soupy coffee water of their own particular soupy coffee brand that they've created and that means that the flavor and the caffeine all gets completely distributed through the water and the beans and then they take the water out put it through some active charcoal filters which only filter out the caffeine molecules and not the smaller flavor molecules and then they put the decaffeinated liquid back into the soup of beans and then that draws out more caffeine draws out more caffeine they take the water they get the caffeine out of that they put it back in. They and obviously to get down to 0.1 percent of your original caffeine, that is a lot of time you have to do through. that. So that's why the Swiss Water Register trademark process is so expensive. Okay, there's one more which I think is going to be Matt's new favorite decaffeination process. Right. The reason it doesn't happen very often is it's really expensive. You basically soak the beans in water and then blast them with a fire extinguisher. Right. What really? Yeah. <laughs> so you freeze much. them? No, you get liquid CO2. Uh, uh, pressures amazing. of about 70 times atmospheric pressure and you put that into your tank of soaking beans and the co2 binds to the caffeine molecules but not the flavor compounds oh, that's incredible so that's you, really you basically incredible. get liquid co2 as your solvent that right? sounds How like that? the kind of coffee making theater that hipster cafes <laughs> would love they should be doing it do you know what i like about that is they found the perfect solvent 
The unfortunate thing is, it's a gas. Yeah. <laughs> so it's going to be really expensive to do it. Under a lot of it. pressure. So yeah, uh, they let the CO2 filled with caffeine into another tank and then they let the pressure off. So then the CO2 goes off one way and the caffeine is just left in the tank. So you end up with caffeine in one tank, decaffeinated beans in the other. This is the kicker. They sell that caffeine to people who make caffeinated beverages. Do you think... Honestly, that coffee tastes nice, or do you think that your addiction to caffeine gives you a sense that coffee is nice? Yeah, definitely that, actually. Definitely yeah. What do you think? I think it tastes nice. Okay. I think it's an acquired taste, but like all good tastes in life, yeah, it takes some effort. If you ask my toddler for the taste she hasn't acquired yet, it's going to be salad. So, I mean, that's Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. The complex flavor of salad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just asking the questions. Yeah. Everyone's thinking. I don't. What? Okay. To answer your question, no, it's not like a tree. Oh. Um, so you dig down and down. And eventually, you get to the Carboniferous stratum, and the reason it's called the Carboniferous stratum is because it's the coal layer, and the vast majority of the Earth's coal is in this layer. Always it, that layer. Yeah. In geological history. So whatever continent or whatever plate you're on. Yeah. That's and, where it is. And you can date it. So the bottom of the layer was 360 million years ago. The top of the layer was 300 million years ago. So the whole layer is 60 million years deep. So the vast majority of coal was made in this brief period, brief in geological terms, 300 million years ago. Why? Why is that the case? Well, the theory goes like this. Go back in time before there were trees, right? So all the plants uh -huh. were kind of... All the plants were like soft. shrubs? Yeah, shrubs, you know, leafy plants. Just through the process of evolution, some plant comes up with the ability to make lignins. And it's a structurally really useful molecule. It's the essence of wood. Just imagine like Chanel, essence of wood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so is this like another arrangement of carbon? Yeah, it's... Typically an arrangement of carbons, hydrogens, maybe there's a phosphor in there or something like that. This was a breakthrough arrangement. 
which was just super solid. It's like when, you know, humans invented concrete. Exactly. Now we're building everything out of concrete. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And doing it bigger and better than ever before. Exactly right. It's a breakthrough. Uh, It spreads around the globe. You've suddenly got all these woody plants. And so one thing you need to know about plants is the nutrient cycle. So plants take nutrients out of the soil and out of the air to grow and then when they die those nutrients break down into smaller parts that can be used again by new plants and this is all powered by the sun except that the decomposition doesn't happen on its own you need decomposers so when a plant dies these decomposers come along that's bacteria and fungi break these large molecules that the plants have built up out of smaller nutrients into smaller parts again that can be reused and what's in it for the decomposers so it's an oxidation reaction so they get energy from the process themselves they kind of eat it and break it down exactly yeah so fungi and bacteria are nature's decomposers not all bacteria obviously but yeah anyway (laughs) hashtag not all bacteria (laughs) (laughs) so the fungi and the bacteria don't know how to break down lignins this novel molecule and so the trees these or these woody plants they fall over and they just kind of lie there it just sits there it just sits there and you know pile up and pile up and pile up the point is, it hangs around for long enough without being decomposed that it eventually fossilizes. And, and that's coal. Coal is fossilized wood or fossilized woody material. And then 60 million years later, some fungus figures out how to digest lignins and effectively shuts down the production of coal. And that's why you've got this layer. Now something coal. can eat wood. Yeah. I heard about this and I googled lignin tree coal evolution or something and the first article that came up was a paper from 2016 which debunked this whole thing (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't like fifth or sixth down there it was like number one i have seen it i have seen the paper and it's kind of like well i mean i don't think i wouldn't say i want to hear from helen now (laughs) whatever well the paper actually says such geobiological hypotheses as this sometimes persist based largely on the strength of their novelty without sufficient predictive testing it's basically that is the most academic cuss i have ever heard yeah is that this sounds awesome but that doesn't mean it's true i think that's a really good point it reminds me actually of a something i used to do when i do live shows for kids and stuff like that i would talk about how a microwave works because the wavelength of the microwaves represents the resonating frequency of water molecules that is not how a microwave works <gasps> yeah it's it, you know and it's a it's a fun one because it's like oh the resonating frequency of water makes total oh, sense great explanation yeah, yeah. No, it's not that there are oh. these like infectious explanations yeah where the explanation's so pleasing it's like recently because- someone noticed on a marmite jar there's that little flat bit uh-huh and and they just tweeted oh i've just realized on a marmite jar a little flat bit is so you can put it on its side and all the marmite pulls so if you put it on the side, it all kind of pulls there and then you can easily get your knife in to get it out. Uh-huh. And that just went everywhere. And eventually the original person was like, I just made it up. But now it's out there. Now there's this infectious explanation ha- of has why. There, has there been official word from the creators of Marmite? Yeah, I don't know. It's probably just about packing, isn't it? I packing suspect of containers. It's, it's either container. efficiency in packing or it's avoiding damage. Because if you've got a dome, that's surely going to get struck harder in one place in a single point a flat flat surface surface. very nice yeah so that is a very pleasing infectious explanation 
Yeah, you see. This is so Everyone, annoying. This was tell supposed to... other people. Yeah. This was supposed to be about where coal comes from. Not why my explanation is bollocks, but it's interesting <laughs> that explanations are often bollocks. <laughs> right, you never know where the journey's going to take you, Steve. All right, but you you did want to know about the original paper. No. And... <laughs> I'm, I'm very interested. Yeah, go on then. Right, so there's a whole load of different things that it talks about, like the fact that it was a very oxygen-rich atmosphere, um, that there's fossil evidence that things did rot even at this time. And the main one is that even if global plant growth was about 25% of what it is now, if the lignin wasn't being digested or decomposed by something, then there would be three gigatons of plant material every year, which would be way more (laughs) coal than we actually have. Like instead of 60 million years to get the amount of coal that we know about, it would have only taken about a thousand years. So if there wasn't anything eating the woody plants, then the coal layer would be a lot thicker. So I I haven't read the paper, so I'm just going to say this off the top of my head. In defense of my explanation, Uh um, presumably the assumption isn't that, you know, lignin comes along and suddenly all plants are made of lignin. So it's not like everything's suddenly a tree. Like there's still stuff there to decompose, but also... Presumably lignin would decompose by other means. For example, you know, UV radiation might decompose. Like there may be non-fungus ways. And so, you know, to make coal, you don't just need there to be no fungi around. There are other conditions that yeah. you need. Like but... lack of oxygen means that nothing example, decomposes. Yeah. Can really I just yeah. paint the picture here? Because on one side of the table, Helen's got the actual paper in front of her <laughs> with, with marked up with notes and stuff. On the other side of the table, Steve's just leaning back in his chair going, yeah, but maybe UV? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. So the main upshot of it is basically saying there's lots of situations that seem to be showing that this lignin could be decomposed at the time so it's not as clear cut it's definitely not as clear cut as you say you know but it's a great ted talk though i'm just yeah well that's the that's the problem isn't it i'm just okay here's what i'm doing guys i'm just trying to embody the person who wants to keep the story going yeah that's what's happening so hold on you're saying that your story i'm calling it your story now yeah might (laughs) be interesting as well and it's something to do with continents what is it continents crushing so they in the carboniferous period according to this paper loads of the continents were moving around and it basically just meant that these like soggy tropical wetland regions peat bogs essentially peat bogs essentially got crushed more effectively during this period oh. than at other times so it's basically saying yeah there's maybe something to do with plants and stuff but it's mostly just that situation that, that environment and that geology of that time <sighs> it says sorry to be a party pooper here yeah. but your brilliant story about slow developing decomposing fungus things oh man is That's is all not... of science though yeah this is way more boring. It's always a bit more complicated than the fun story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay, right. So that's our three pieces of fuel for your brain in this episode. And if there's one thing we do all agree on, it's how appreciative we are that you are listening to this podcast. There's a whole load of extra show notes, links, images, and all that sort of stuff at festivalofthespokennerd.com 
forward slash podcast. Yep, you can read the original papers that Steve and I were um, just, uh, what's the word, discussing. <laughs> and if you want something more neutral, then uh, Matt's book Humble Pie is all about planes lacking fuel and maths mistakes. There's information about that there and some more adventures in decaf coffee. Of course, we'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to this podcast on your podcast app of choice. You'll get the new episodes straight away and you can follow us on all the various social media. We are Festival of the Spoken Nerd on Facebook and Instagram. And on Twitter, we make your life a bit easier by abbreviating it to F-O-T-S-N. And you can email us at podcast at festivalofthespokennerd.com. Let us know what you think. Or if you've got some unnecessary detail for us, we'd love to hear it. Helen, you've got a song to finish up. Yes, I've recorded a new version of my song about Earth's ultimate source of fuel, which is, of course, the sun. So I basically win this episode completely. A uh, couple of people to thank for this song. Firstly, you won't have heard this version of this particular song unless you've watched our Just for Graphs comedy special available at the Spoken Nerd Shop uh, because Howard Carter, our music buddy, made this huge orchestral arrangement. It's absolutely wonderful and I've re-recorded all of the uh, lyrics and stuff like that uh, just for this podcast. There's one more person to thank, a certain Mrs. Matt Parker or uh, Professor Lucy Green, as she is professionally known, who helped me to peer review the lyrics. So they are both factually accurate and uh, some of them rhyme. You can guess which bit she helped me with. You can hear the whole thing after the credits. And I think that's it from us. Bye. 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 Podcast of Unnecessary Detail is made by Festival of the Spoken Nerd. That's Helen Arney, Steve Mould and Matt Parker, with music by Howard Carter and design by Adam Robinson. Our brilliant producer is John Harvey. Thanks for listening. I used to be someone. Now I'm just another son. One of a hundred thousand billion billion. You treat me you name a tabloid after me synonymous with paparazzi just a backdrop for brian cox on tv since edwin hubble it's never been the same those pictures of other stars pushed me out of the frame you never even gave me a proper name something like Alpha Centauri or Epsilon Tauri or Delta Libre I'll even take HR2948 or Kevin You've achieved nuclear fusion Oh well done Made some helium from a little hydrogen That's very cute Well every second I do that to 600 million tons If I was Marilyn Monroe You'd be The one I can't remember the name of From One Direction Which is all of One Direction you should have stopped at Copernicus Then I'd still be the center of your universe You say I'm just an average ball of gas ha! I say 
you're talking out of Uranus. One point four million kilometers. That's my diameter. Tell me seriously with those parameters. Have you ever tried to put a hat on there? Hip, 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 hooray. Well, I'll be a red giant someday, and your world will go up in flames. <laughs> in the meantime, <laughs> please join my Facebook fan page. Seriously, I've only got nine likes. Well, it's gone down to eight now since Pluto defriended me. I will shine. Oh!